0: Dear God, I thank you for each person here. Lord, we know that you have something for them, an encouragement, a challenge, a correction. Lord, I do thank you for those who serve in our congregation. Lord, we are so grateful for Michael and his work. He's been ser- He's served in our children's ministry for many, many years. And we thank you for the last year of leadership and grateful for all those who have come alongside of him. We do lift up... Uh, lift up Christy and just pray for uh, your wisdom for her as she pours God's truth into these young minds and hearts. And we just ask your blessing on her ministry as she steps into this important role. I ask uh, just for your spirit to do his work among us. In the name of Jesus, amen. So I want to set up our passage this morning, and it's a long text, But let me just give you a little bit of context because not everybody has a church background and kind of knows where we are. And we, even though this is a more familiar story, if you have a church background, if you don't, you don't know really what's going on. So I want to just give you a little bit of context. So God works with the jewish people he had a special covenant with them and he worked with israel and he worked with them and at some point they asked for a king and so he gave them king saul who turned out to not be a good king and then the next king was david and he was a good king and then um he i mean he had flaws but he did strive to follow god and had um, a heart after god and pursued that relationship with Him. And then there was King Solomon who started out well, but ended poorly and did not follow God well and wholeheartedly for all of his life. And so then the kingdom, so that's when the kingdom was united. The Jewish nation was united. And then it split after Solomon. And so then you had Israel, which was most of the tribes in the north. And then you had Judah, just a couple tribes in the south. And they stayed with uh, David's line, and the Israelites, the the northern Jews, they kind of went off on their own. If you look at the era that follows, you see about 20 kings in each area, each kingdom. And in the north, every single king was bad. In the south, I believe 8 out of the 20 were good, which meant 12 out of the 20 were bad. And so, it wasn't a great picture either place, but the northern kingdom was much worse, much darker, and had definitely strayed farther from God. Where we are in our text this morning is in 1 Kings chapter 18. We're in the northern kingdom, and we have one of the most wicked kings that the northern kingdom ever has. Um, His name is Ahab, and he has a A wicked wife, Jezebel. And so they have taken the nation far from God. As a matter of fact, Jezebel has all these prophets from her pagan land. She was not a Jew from Phoenicia. And she is feeding them and she is um, advocating for them. She is pushing the worship of this false god, Baal. And so That's kind of the context. And as a matter of fact, she's pushing it so hard that there's an active persecution of anybody who's following the one true God of the Bible, Yahweh. And so she actually has killed many prophets. Active persecution. It's just a wretched time in this northern kingdom. Now, Elijah, the prophet, has gone to the king, Ahab, three years before this, three, three and a half years before this, and he told him because of his wickedness that, that there's going to be a drought, there's going to be a famine. And so this has happened, and so now we're at the tail end of this, and God is going to restore the rain, he's going to change the situation, but he wants to make sure it's very clear who's doing this. Now, this particular drought was a direct attack on this false god, Baal, because Baal was supposed to be um, the god of fertility and storms and rain, and he's pictured with a lightning bolt in his hand. And so um, for God, the real God, Yahweh, the God of the Bible, to cause, declare, and then cause this drought was a direct attack on Baal's authority and supposedly what Baal could do. And so now, after three years in hiding, Elijah the great prophet shows up. So that's where we're at. And Ahab has, he's been looking for him all over the country. He's contacted other kingdoms. Uh, Where is he? He wants, he really hates Elijah. And, you know, this is, he could kill Elijah. that, That could be his intent. I mean, but he definitely does not like Elijah. So that's where we're at. So this is 1 Kings chapter 18, 17 through 46. This is a long text. Hang with me. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. So right before this, Elijah had met um, Ahab's steward, the one who, who worked for him, and Obadiah was a follower of God. He had stayed true despite the wickedness of his boss and his boss's wife and all that had been done. As a matter of fact, he had even hidden some of those um, who claimed to be prophets of God. He had hidden 50 of them in two caves. So had about 100 of them and spared them from the persecution and the massacre that uh, Jezebel was trying to do. And so Elijah appears to him, says, hey, go get the king. I want to talk to him. And Obadiah is very nervous about this because God has been hiding Elijah for this period of time. And he's like, well, if I go get him and come back and you're not here, he's going to kill me. Elijah says, I'll be here. And so he goes and gets the king. So here's here's where we are. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, this is the king, is that you, you troubler of Israel? Have you not made trouble for Israel? Um, I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah. Uh, She is considered the wife of Baal. So she's another false god who eat at Jezebel's table. So Jezebel is taking care of these prophets Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Now, he didn't assemble all of them. It looks like he just assembled the ones uh, for Baal. So the 450. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? This is the crucial question of this text. How long will you waver between these two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I'm the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Now he's talking about that's courageous enough to come and do this showdown against the prophets of Baal. Um, or he's saying those ones that have been hidden in the cave aren't true prophets. I, you could Some theologians argue it either way, but he's definitely the only one that has the courage for this showdown. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Now, this showdown, he gives the home court advantage. He gives all the advantages to the prophets of Baal. As a matter of fact, the King Ahab probably is going hey, my, my guys are going to pull this off because he picked Mount Carmel, this area that the Phoenicians viewed as the home of Baal, kind of a sacred area in their thinking. And so he picks Baal's home. He lets them out of the two bulls pick which one they want, you know, pick the better of the two bulls. And it's 450 to one profit. So they have all the advantages as far as if you're looking at this. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call in the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. So for hours, this went on. Baal, answer us, they shouted, but there was no response. No one answered and they danced around the altar um, they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. I always enjoy this part. Anyway, shout louder, he said. Surely he is a God. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. Um, So we're talking about six hours of just begging Baal to send fire from the sky, which should not have been hard for Baal to do if he were a real god, because he's pictured as having a lightning bolt or fire in his hands, and so this, you would think, would be right up his alley but there was no response no one answered no one paid attention then elijah said to all the people come here to me they came to him and he repaired the altar of the lord so during the time of persecution this there was an altar to the one true god but it had either been intentionally destroyed or was just in ruins from lack of anyone using it so he repaired the altar of the lord which had been torn down Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. So notice he treats the people of God as one. He doesn't just acknowledge the northern part, the northern kingdom that he's in. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold uh, two seahs of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the ground, uh, laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, fill four large jars with water, pour it on the offering, and on the wood. Now, water is precious at this time. uh, So they may have gone and gotten it from the sea, which was close by, because they're they're close to that. Um, But they get water, which is very precious in a drought. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it the third time. So he is just dousing this sacrifice, dousing this so that there can't be any funny business. So that if this thing catches on fire, it is true. There's no doubt about it. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed. Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. Now, that's the prayer. It wasn't six hours of flailing and crying and dancing and screaming. He throws out this prayer, this very simple conversation with God. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Then Elijah commanded them, seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. And Elijah said to Ahab, go eat and drink for there is the sound of heavy of a heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel. Now the eat and drink is probably that Ahab is being invited back into, they had this concept of table fellowship, that he and the people are being invited back into relationship with God. The relationship was broken, but God has answered, he has proven who he is, and he invites them in. Um, So he goes off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel, bent down to the ground, put his face between his knees, go and look toward the sea, he told his servant, and he went up and looked. There's nothing there, he said. Seven times, Elijah said, go back. The seventh time the servant reported a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot, go down before the rain stops you. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds. The wind rose, a heavy rain started falling, and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. The power of the Lord came on Elijah, and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. This is 15, 20, some even estimate 25 miles. Uh, This is an impressive feat for an older man to run in front of a chariot. Now in that culture, this was also not just kind of almost a miraculous um, thing to do, but this was a respect Thing to do. This was an, an act of humility on the part of Elijah. He has just, in essence, defeated Ahab, shown that he is truly the troubler of Israel. And yet, there's kind of this table fellowship offered, and then he runs before him, which in that culture, um, you know, he's, he's hoping that Ahab is going to turn back to God. And we'll get into this a little more next week, but if he hadn't had his wife, maybe he would have. But he runs before him, and in this amazing feat, he basically runs, you know, almost a marathon in front of the chariot and gets there. Now, so that's the story. The name Elijah, the name of this prophet, means Yahweh is God. And so his name really points to his calling points to this moment where he makes it very clear. Now, throughout all of his prophetic ministry, through all the miracles that he did, and, and for us, there are seven major miracles recorded uh, for Elijah. And then there's double that for his successor, Elisha, which that gets a little confusing. I wish their names had been more different. But uh, there, it's Elijah and Elisha. And so here you have, he demonstrates, he proves that Yahweh is the one true God. Now, when we look at this particular story, I want to pull out some ideas. And the idea is this, and, and just look at it from a couple angles. What does it mean to be a servant of God? What does God expect of a servant? What are some of those traits, those characteristics? How are we to act if we're going to be a servant of God? What can we learn from this ancient story about how to live? I think the first one is to practice obedience. If you look at our text again, 1 Kings 18:18, 18, 18, notice that the criticism, the challenge that's given to the king is that Elijah says to him, "You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals." And so, we are called, if we are to be servants of the one true God, to practice obedience. Obedience can be hard. Some of your parents And sometimes your kids don't want to obey. Sometimes we don't want to obey those in authority over us. It can be a challenging exercise to be obedient. But part of being a servant of God is to practice obedience. To trust that God desires what is best for us. That when he gives us commands, that when he offers us wisdom and guidance, that it is for our good and we can walk in deep trust with that. I think of a TV news camera that um, it was after Hurricane Andrew, so this was years ago down in Florida, and this they went into this one neighborhood, and all these houses were just devastated by this hurricane, except one house. And they go to the guy who's out in his yard, and he's picking up trash, and they ask him. They said, "Why do you think your house is standing and nobody else's around you got destroyed? What do you think that's about?" And he said, well, I built this house myself. And he said, I built it to the letter of the Florida State Building Code. And they told me that if I build it to that code, that my house could survive a hurricane. And he said, he looked around, and he said, I suspect that the others didn't follow the code. Now, I think that's a picture of life. We have a God who gives us a code, who gives us commandments. Now, that's not all Christianity is, but it is a part of a relationship with an all-powerful, all-knowing God who loves us and desires what's best for us. Just as we who are parents have some commands or rules for our children, he has some for us as well. And so we want to practice obedience we have a tendency, particularly in our culture, but it's, it's not unique to American culture, to think that we know better than God. To think that we can determine what is right and wrong. This goes all the way back to the garden with Adam and Eve. They wanted to, you know, God told them, gave them one rule, and they broke it anyway. We want to live for an audience of one. The temptation is to try to please other people or try to always please ourselves, but we want to please God. We want to practice obedience. Robert Peterson, author, once said this. He said, The great scandal of Christianity is that by every measure, the majority of those who profess Christ do not think, talk, or live like him obedience matters jesus says this in john fourteen twenty one. he says whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me the one who loves me will be loved by my father and i too will love them and show myself to them so if you claim to love god but don't obey his commands you are lying it's that simple and yet it's that difficult Our actions follow our essence. If we truly see ourselves as children of God, as servants of God, then we are called to walk in obedience. Dwight L. Moody, the famous evangelist, once said this. He said, The world has yet to see what God can do with a person fully consecrated to Him. I think Elijah is one of those people that, that got pretty close. He truly did try to follow God wholeheartedly. We hear that phrase uh, about Caleb in the Old Testament as well. When we live for ourselves, we shrink our potential. And we shatter our witness. But if we live for God and we honor Him and practice obedience, we will have a life of power and impact. And we need to keep this in mind because sometimes we'll look at something and we'll think, you know, a lie will serve me better here at this moment. But God tells me to tell the truth. And we'll think, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just try that. Or maybe it's, it's some of God's uh, commands about sexuality. Our culture is basically um, telling God that he doesn't know what he's talking about, even though he designed sexuality, uh, he designed sex. And our culture has said, we know better. We're going to do with whoever, whenever, Outside the bonds of heterosexual marriage, we're going to do whatever we want. And we're going to pay for that. There's a cost to that. We need to understand that. One author said, and I appreciated this, he said, no matter how far you get, disaster is always just one poor decision away. I could wreck my marriage, my family, my ministry, my life, Just give me a few hours. I can make a couple critical decisions that defy the commands of God, devastate decades of consistency and faithfulness. And you could too. You've heard those stories. You've seen them. You've been impacted by them. Now, some people struggle when they read this story because they kill the false prophets. Understand that the Old Testament, they were under the Old Testament law. Now, we're a New Covenant people. We're not under the Old Testament law. We're under the New Covenant. And now some of the Old Testament... Uh, Commands are repeated in the New Testament and we're under those. For instance, in the Ten Commandments, nine of them are repeated in the New Testament, so we're under those. The one that's not mentioned is remembering the Sabbath, and I think that's because the early church, because of the resurrection, moved the Sabbath, the day of rest and worship, from Saturday to Sunday to celebrate and focus on the resurrection of Jesus. But understand that Elijah was following the commands of God when he killed these false. Prophets Exodus twenty two twenty. There are multiple passages, but I'll just read you this one: Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord must be destroyed. And so he was just being obedient. Now that affects our sensibilities a little bit. Understand, as New Testament people, we are commanded to love our enemies. So it is a different time. We're in a different covenant. But he was being consistent. With the commands of god at that time Um, one of the operating commands i'll dig in a little bit at the end but we're under the command to make disciples of all nations you know about a third of the population of the world um, as far as we can tell is is unreached for the gospel haven't really had many opportunities and so we are called to make disciples we are called to reach our world and so we want to be people of obedience This is absolutely crucial. And I just want to give you a question on this point. Here's the question. I want you to think about this. What would happen if every American Christian actually did what Jesus said? Would our culture look different? Would our families look different? So that's something to think about. The goal is at the end of life to be before a holy God and we're flawed. We, we need his grace. But to hear from him, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what we want to hear. Not well said, well done. To walk it out. The second idea when I read this story is to be courageous. To be courageous. Right before this text, I told you that Obadiah runs into a Elijah and Elijah says, go get the king. And Obadiah is nervous about this says, you're going to be here when I get back, right? Because this could be a death sentence. And he tells Elijah, hey, I saved some others that would have been persecuted by Jezebel, would have been maybe killed by Jezebel. And so he showed courage. Here he is in the royal court working against their persecution. Um, He wasn't open and blatant and in their face like Elijah was, but he did show courage and that he worked against their evil agenda. When you look at Elijah, you see a man of of courage. Now, as we go further in the story, next week we'll talk about where his courage fails him. But in this section, he does very well. When you see in our text, 1 Kings 18.22, Elijah said to them, um, I am um, the only one of the prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. He has the courage to stand up against 450 prophets, all pointing in another direction. Now that's intense. I mean, there are psychological studies. Um, The Ash study is a famous one where if they show somebody a couple lines and they have different lengths, and if you stack it so everybody's in on the study except one person, that most of the time, um, the person who's kind of the subject of the study, they will go with the crowd. And they'll say, yeah, those two lines are the same, even though they're not remotely the same. They can see that. They can look at that. But there's pressure in that. We have to be people of courage. I like what uh, theologian Scott McKnight says about the role of a prophet. He says a prophet speaks openly and clearly about what God is for, speaks openly and clearly about what God is against. And then then he says to the prophet, I, God, am with you. Have courage, but you may have to duck or die. That was his summary of what it means to be a prophet. Because usually prophets got in trouble. Ahab wasn't the first king. He wasn't the first secular power to say that the people of God, the outspoken people of God, were a problem. We have seen this around the world, throughout history, and I actually think we're headed into it right now, here. We desire to fit in. We all want to fit in. But I want to remind you that Almost everyone, if you start digging into the stories of those in the Bible, experienced at least seasons of rejection. Moses, rejected by the Egyptians, rejected by his own people, even rejected by his brother and a sister at one point. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Amos. If you're going to follow Jesus Christ, you're going to experience rejection. Jesus himself... The perfect example, the God man, grace and truth, said everything exactly that perfect balance of grace and truth, and they killed him. Because, see, I used to live under this impression that, you know, if I just was thoughtful and I thought about how he said it, that, that we Christians wouldn't be that offensive. They killed him. Now he rose from the dead. But understand, you're going to have to, if you're going to follow Jesus Christ in many cultures around the world, many countries, and I think here with increasing frequency, if you're going to follow Jesus Christ, you have to be willing to be courageous. You have to grow a backbone, it's going to be part of it. Both Jesus and Paul were called troublemakers. It's interesting historians talk about during the roman empire there were 10 great persecutions where the church the roman empire the powerful empire of its day tried to wipe out the church starting with nero and going all the way through diocletian so 10 times the most powerful empire around the mediterranean went after the church and tried to wipe it out but Christians down through history have shown courage. Anti-Christian scholar Bart Ehrman in his book The Triumph of Christianity, which is a fascinating book when you see someone who's anti-Christian talking about how Christianity spread in an amazing and miraculous way. He talks about how one of the reasons that the early church grew so radically was that during times of great sickness, Like there was a plague during the time of Marcus Aurelius that killed a quarter to a third of the population. So here we are in a pandemic with a very, very low death rate and and the fear has been palatable, has it not? We're talking about a quarter to a third of the population and despite this terrifying plague, Christians were eager to minister to the sick. The pagans abandoned the sick. The Christians said, well, we'll help them because we're not afraid to die courage and so this anti-christian historian scholar says that's one of the reasons the church grew because they were courageous that's something god expects of us to be courageous in 2008 there were hindu extremists who attacked christians throughout india hundreds of churches were burned down thousands of christians were killed one hot spot was orissa india When the person there, they they usually come for the leaders first. So they grabbed the pastor uh, and they had his wife and she's holding their newborn baby. And they took the husband and they beat him to death in front of his wife, cut him into pieces in front of his wife, made her watch, then took her baby and killed the baby in front of her. Then multiple men raped her, poured flammable fluid on her and lit her on fire and left her for dead she survived when she told her story to a missionary we support Dr. Ajay Law he said this this is what she said here's what I would like to tell Christians all across the world if I can stay faithful to Jesus after such a horrific event why can't you see extreme hate meant extreme courage in her about 150 years ago, there was a great revival in Wales. As a result of this, there were many missionaries who went to India to try to spread the gospel. And they found people that were very hostile to the gospel. There were some American Baptist missionaries that began to spread the message as well. And they went into this one particular village, converted um, a man and his wife and two children. The man's faith proved to be contagious, and many of the villagers began to accept Christianity. The story goes that the village chief was angered by this because they were turning their backs on the ancient gods, and so they called the family who had converted and told them, you know, in public in front of the whole village to renounce their faith or face public execution. The man said, no, and a song that I grew up singing, they say, were based on some of the statements he made in this exchange. When he was told that we're going to shoot arrows into your children, he said, No. He said, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Enraged, so they killed his children in front of him. They gave him another chance with his wife. He refused. To back down and deny his faith they killed his wife in front of him finally before he was about to die they gave him another chance and they said um, and he just he said several times he said I've decided to follow Jesus no turning back no turning back and there's a song created on that that I sang maybe you have too if you have a church background To be a servant of God in the world today requires courage. In the United States at this moment, it's a much lesser level than what I'm talking about. But our brothers and sisters, our family, our spiritual family around the world is already there and already having to step into that role of giving their very lives for the faith. The third idea when I look at this particular passage is that we are to speak and to defend the truth if you look at this particular passage, notice some interesting things. The Jewish nation has split in two. You have Israel in the north and you have Judah in the south. And what he does is in 1 Kings 18 verse 30 and 31, he repairs this altar and he uses 12 stones. And so he sends this message, hey, I know there's a political division among you. But the truth is, is that you're one nation. The truth is, is that there's a covenant with this whole people. And we might be in the the most rotten section of it because all the kings were bad in the north. But you're part of that one people. And so he proclaimed truth in the midst of this political division that had hit that nation. Now, I think it's interesting that Often in our culture, the truth only comes from the church. You look at other institutions. I mean, really? you know do you trust everything the government tells you? Do you trust everything the media tells you? Do you trust? I mean, you just start going down the list, and some of it might be true, but a lot of it is not. The church is the one thing that you can trust the, the scripture, the actual word of God. Now George Orwell once said, it's one of my favorite quotes, he said, During times of universal deceit, telling the truth becomes a revolutionary act. Because in a world swirling with lies, the world does not like truth. But the Bible gives us the truth that we can count on, that we can stand on. Not my opinion on this or that, not your opinion on this or that. The Word of God. Make sure it's rooted there. Make sure that's what you share. If you look at our text, 1 Kings 18.24, it says, Then you call in the name of your God, and I will call in the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, He is God. Then all the people said, What you say is good. He set up a test to show what is true, what is right, what is real. And so sometimes, sometimes we have to be bold you have to like just face the consequences and i don't know what that looks like for you maybe it's you know you're talking with because you know in our culture where truth is relative you have your truth and i have my truth and we're not supposed to challenge each other and it's just that's just kind of then we all get along supposedly but you know if you're chatting with say a christian scientist which is not christian and it's not scientific But let's say you're talking to somebody from that group. Started by Mary Baker Eddy. So if you're chatting with that person, you know, you have a friend or somebody, you might study up on that. What does that mean? What do they believe? And then you might challenge them and say, well, she taught that pain was not real. Um, I always think of my daughter. She was out on the soccer field, and this little kid came up to her and said, um, said, pardon me. And she's like, what? And then he just kicked her. (laughs) It's like, what? Pain is real. The same leader, Mary Baker Eddy, talked about how that death was not real, but it's an error of mortal mind. Now, you can get away with that when you're a living, but now she is dead. She died at 89. You can go see her grave. And yet, this group continues. This group exists. So, tell people the truth. And there's so many false systems, so many false beliefs. Adrian Rogers, famous Baptist minister, once said, it is better to be divided by truth than united by error. So make sure you're a defender and one who speaks the truth. And it's going to get harder in so many different ways. I mean, Christians, you're going to have to think about how do we handle when the person in front of you says, I'm this different gender, and you can look at them and go, well... You really want me to lie? I'm really supposed to join you in your delusion? But your employer is probably going to expect you to do that. What does a courageous Christian do? This is what you're facing. The pressure to conform in our culture is going to get stronger and stronger. The fourth idea when I look at this story is that we need to pray boldly. First Kings 17, 1 Kings 17.1, it talks about how Elijah, um, he declares that there's not going to be rain for all these years. And we get a New Testament commentary on this passage because it doesn't mention prayer in the 1 Kings 17 passage. But James 5, verse 17 and 18 says this, Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years again he prayed and the heavens gave rain and the earth produced its crops the point of that is elijah's just like us and he prayed and god answered and something miraculous happened many of us are not bold in our prayers many of us are really you know there's this tendency and i had this tendency for a long time i pray for things that if i work really hard i can pull them off I'm telling you, if you feel led by the Holy Spirit, pray for things that only God can do. Then you know he answered, right? Pray boldly. I mean, that's bold to gather the nation and say, you know, fire's going to fall from the sky and he cries out and God actually does it. 1 Kings 18, 24, you call in the name of your God, I'll call in the name of the Lord, the God who answers by fire. He is God. And all the people said, what you say is good. And then it goes on, 1 Kings 18, verse 36 through 38. Notice, I mean, he doesn't do this big elaborate prayer. He just says, Lord, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Israel. Notice he joins them together. He refers to their history. See, he's treating them like one again, not the two divided nations. Let it be known today that you are God in Israel and I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so these people will know that you, Lord, are God. And the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, and licked up the water in the trench. Pray boldly. Ajay Lal, a missionary that we support in India, tells about when he was living in central India and a police inspector, this chief inspector, was connected to a radical group, um, an extreme group, and began harassing them because they were Christians and because they were leading this Christian ministry. And he began to threaten their daughter and said, Look, you're gonna pay me a bunch of money, it was thousands of dollars. And he even gave them a deadline, you're gonna pay me by Thursday at noon, or something's gonna to happen to your daughter. Maybe she'll die, maybe she'll get hurt. I mean, that's terrifying. Can you imagine? And he's the police, so where do you go? What do you do when it's the authority doing this to you? And Abjay Law said, We prayed. That was our weapon. And they prayed and prayed. And he said that that deadline came and went and nothing happened. They're like, you know, they you know, tried to take precautions, but like nothing happened. And then they found out that this police officer, this police chief person who was in his 20s, came in that morning, the deadline was at noon, sat at his desk and about noon, had massive chest pains and dropped dead in his office. Now, they didn't pray for that. But that was the answer they got. That's crazy. And so there is power in prayer. Al J. Law talks about another time he was preaching in an area where he said, I don't think the gospel had ever been preached publicly because there were such threats. And he said the police called him in and made him sign a statement that if he caused a riot, they were allowed, they gave, he gave his permission for them to shoot and kill him. And then he could, he could speak. He's like, well, that's a little unnerving. And he signed the statement. He gets up to preach. And when he starts his sermon, the, the head of that, the, that police chief, you know, yelled out to his men who were in the audience, said, when I give the order, if we need to, you shoot him. Shoot and kill him. He said, I preached for 45 minutes with all these police officers sitting there with guns, waiting for the order, whether or not I was to be shot but he preached the sermon anyway. And at the end, this police chief comes up to him afterwards, and he said this. He said, I've never heard about this Jesus. He sounds amazing. I think I could follow him too. Isn't that crazy? Courage combined with prayer is potent. The final idea is this. I don't have time to elaborate, but just call ourselves and others to a clear-cut decision. When all the people saw this, 1 Kings 18.39, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. After fire fell from the sky. We are to call people to a clear-cut decision. There's an old song by Bob Dylan. He says, you've got to serve somebody. It might be the devil, it might be the Lord, but you have to serve somebody. There is no neutral. You're on one side or the other. You cannot put a foot in each camp. You have to decide, where am I? And as a culture slides, it will get harder and clearer. And you'll have to decide where you are. The great challenge is to end that double-mindedness, that dance, that going back and forth. Because that crowd that day, as Elijah does his, Rebuilds this altar. Some of them probably worshiped the God of the Bible and Baal. Just as some of us worship the God of the Bible and money, or the God of the Bible and family, or the God of the Bible and you fill in the blank, pride, self. So we have to call ourselves first and others to a clear cut decision. When you fast forward to Jesus, he says something that I still find shocking, even though I've read it hundreds of times. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife, children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Jesus wants it to be very clear. Now, other places he says to love these folks. So he's not saying to literally hate them. He's saying, compared to your love for me, it's, it looks like that. Nothing, nothing can be on the same level with Your commitment to God. And so we are called to make a decision for us to follow. One of the things I think about, let's say it all turns, it all goes sideways in the United States. Do I have the kind of faith that will die for Jesus Christ? I don't think you know until you have that moment. Do my kids have that kind of faith? Have I put anything remotely close to that in them? I don't know the answer to that. I hope we don't find out, but we might. We might someday. So, who is the person you're praying for regularly? Who are you trying to call to make a decision? Are they seeing in you any stories where God has answered a prayer? Are they seeing in you courage? Are they seeing in you obedience? Because if all they're getting is a lot of talk and no obedience, there's no power, there's no impact. You're not going to have any credibility. So the big idea is this, how long will you waver if the Lord is God, follow him wholeheartedly and share him with others enthusiastically? Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you for each person here Lord, we do thank you for the incredible freedoms that we have. We thank you for the faith of our founders. We are grateful for it. Life is pretty comfortable for us and has been for a long time. Lord, I don't claim to be a prophet. I don't know what the future holds. But the culture is darkening and the pressure is mounting. And so Lord, I just pray that we have the kind of faith that it doesn't matter what governments do. It doesn't matter what the culture says. We have a kind of faith that it doesn't stand alone because we're never alone, but it stands with you and it may feel like we're alone at times. Lord, I pray that we are those kind of people that we are, that you will raise up among us Elijah's and Esther's and Daniels, and Shadrach, and Meshach, and Abednego's, folks that in times of great compromise, and challenge, and evil, will be different, and will stand for you wholeheartedly. This is our prayer in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.